0: So what I would say is that there is this sort of extrinsic drift within our culture where people are more and more willing to attribute human motivation and accept extrinsic motivators for human behavior in such a way that really kind of makes consciousness kind of irrelevant. One of the reasons I think that is because we have come up with such very good extrinsic technology, right? We've had a huge amount of technological advancement in the extrinsic realm and basically no advancement in the intrinsic realm. So it's kind of being outcompeted. competed but I do think that we're, we're in some sense drifting away from consciousness, both as an explanation for how people behave and also as kind of something that has importance within our culture and that we pay attention to and that we care about representing the, the details of.
1: Hello and welcome. To the Musing Mind podcast. This is a space for conversations about consciousness and culture and how we might live in the 21st century. Today we have Eric Howell on the podcast, for which I'm infinitely excited. Eric is a research assistant professor at Tufts University, where he researches consciousness and emergence. He is also a literature geek and writer, as he grew up in his parents' independently owned bookstore, Jabberwocky. And he never relinquished that tie to writing. So I first caught Windoverik, uh in an essay that he tweeted out called Enter the Supersensorium in Baffler magazine. And in his tweet describing the essay, he said it tied together Yuval Noah Harari and David Foster Wallace. Um, so naturally, I dug right in. And it was the kind of reading experience that afterwards, I just felt high. Right? I was I was so energized and electrified by both... The science and the inquiries it was making into consciousness, but also just it was oozing with skill of, of words and writing. And it's not often that you get that kind of cross pollination between literature and science. And it's especially rare to find that in somebody who's young, you know, let alone not dead, um, and part of the current and upcoming generation. So I was really excited to speak with Eric. Uh, we got into some really fun terrain. Eric explained why Freud was the best thing to happen in television what novels offer us that other forms of media cannot, how a postmodern culture might eventually just disappear up its own brainstem unless it develops taste or something of what he calls an aesthetic spectrum, and what metamodernism might have to do with being a snob. So please enjoy my conversation with Eric Coel. All right, so, how are you? Nice nice to meet with you here.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for uh, for having me on.
1: Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm excited. So I was thinking, maybe a, a fun place to start uh, would be with a line I got out of a Bob Dylan movie. Actually, I was just watching uh, a few months ago. It was a, a recent one. It was called "I'm Not There," where they had like a rotating cast of about six people play Dylan in like different phases of his life. And I've, um, I've heard
0: of this but never seen it.
1: Oh, it's awesome um but there's a scene and it stuck with me he dylan it's a young dylan i think he's in his 20s and he's at a diner late night he meets a girl who's about to who will become one of his girlfriends and he sits down in a booth with her and just kind of looks her right in the eyes and the first thing he says to her is uh so you know what's at the center of your universe and i thought that was such a such a big like you know way to to start out the relationship with kind of what's going on at the center of you know your your curiosity your interests what's going on in your life kind of what's the that kind of gravitational pull, everything else swings around. So I thought I might throw that up to you and and see what comes out.
0: Certainly. So uh, I think one is a a very significant one, which is consciousness. And consciousness is an incredibly interesting because if you think of it as a natural phenomenon, um, which I I think certainly one should. Right. uh, Then it's the only one of the few remaining natural phenomenons that we have literally no understanding of you <laughs> are quite we're quite in the dark and yet it's also paradoxical in that each of us know it so well it's the universe in which we reside it's the center of all our universes right, right. and for me not only is it interesting in a scientific from a scientific point of view but i think one of my original Reasons for being interested in it was that I grew up in a independent bookstore out on the East Coast mm. called the Jabawaki, <laughs> and uh, run and it was run by my mother and I worked there during high school, and of course we sold all sorts of books and, and the store is still going. Uh, so if you're ever in Newburyport, nice. Massachusetts, uh, check it out. Uh, but. Of course, the the main draw and the 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 heart of every bookstore is the the fiction section. And so growing up reading um, novels, and I, and I kind of think now that the novel has a unique among all other types of of media relationship to consciousness, mm-hmm. such that it's it's both the interaction with the consciousness of the author. But it's also imaginary world, um, like a a logically possible world, but one which doesn't physically exist. All novels are imaginary worlds in which the problem of other minds does not exist, Mm
2: -hmm. in
0: that the author can directly refer to conscious states and emotions in a way that's possible to in the real world, particularly without a scientific theory of consciousness. So as a super simple example, uh, an author might say this character is mad
2: right <laughs> and
0: and that might you know be a sentence even in just a children's book but if you think about having to show anger in a movie say in a different medium uh, a medium not built out of language in the way that a novel is think about all the outward signs that you would then have to portray this uh, character portrayed this character as having in order to convince a viewer that that person is actually angry. So they might be mm-hmm. flushed in the face. They might be angry. They might be screaming. They might be cursing. They might be, you know, s- saying they, they, they might have to then go back to relying on language. But if you imagine just that paradox of like, well, how do you actually show that someone is angry right. in a film? Because of course in a film, someone could also be pretending that they're angry and it would look, Exactly the same. Mm -hmm. So in what I call extrinsic media, which is media like films, the consciousness, the the relationship that the viewer has to the consciousness of the characters is the same as the relationship that you have to my consciousness, which is that you don't actually know that it exists and you have no direct access to it.
1: Almost like a zombie problem.
0: Yes, exactly. So, so this is what the philosophers would call a, a philosophical zombie, right? And right. The, the problem of other minds is that we don't really have a very good way of determining what, what are other minds uh, or when something has a mind. Right. So, uh, the, and, but m- kind of more importantly than just proof, uh, because I don't think people are watching movies thinking about philosophical problems, <laughs> it's that there is no direct reference. And so if you're dealing with internal states— if the subject of your art is internal states, intrinsic states, by that I mean conscious states, then – and you are a, you are a filmmaker – then you can only approach and refer to those states in the most ham-fisted ways imaginable, which right. is why there is so much drama, right, in, in TV shows right. and movies and so on, is that you have to put these characters into you have to ramp up the stakes to the most insane levels, right – yeah. in order to kind of get the emotion so clearly so that then the viewer has the experience of like, okay, I'm, I'm seeing into these characters' minds. But of course, a novelist can be not just much more subtle, but they have an entire range of reference that extrinsic media lack. And so intrinsic media like novels are ones that can represent consciousness. And so I think even from the beginning, now of course, when I was younger and deciding to go into science, I, I wasn't exactly framing things like that. Um, yeah. But I, I do think that there is a kind of line between fiction, um, literary fiction, but also fantasy and science fiction, right? I, I don't mean to exclude genres because what really matters is, is language and kind of the structure of the story uh, yeah. to make it intrinsic media. From that to consciousness research, um, in fact, um, one of the people who originally tried to destroy consciousness research which happened in the 1940s and 50s with a movement called behaviorism
2: mm-hmm.
0: where they that bf skinner who was kind of the leading figure of behaviorism before he became the leading figure of behaviorism and psychology and knocked out consciousness from within the acceptable realm of scientific discourse was a failed novelist uh-huh. and i think that there's probably a very good reason yeah. that after failing at writing novels, you should go and, and try to convince people that consciousness isn't a real thing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. That, that brings up, um, something I'd, I'd written down from one of your essays, uh, fiction in the age of screens, where you're, you're talking about these same issues. And towards the end, uh, you had this phrase that I haven't been able to get out of my head. You talked about extrinsic drift, um, which is really kind of getting at this this divide you're talking about between interior and exterior uh, media. You had a lot. You said that uh, extrinsic drift is why people are so willing to believe that a shopping addiction should be cured by drugs, that serotonin is happiness, or oxytocin is love, or this idea that that we're viewing these things from the outside. And and as I understand it, I think you brought in even almost a scientific discourse on the whole. And I'm wondering if you were if you meant by that that science can only go so far as being a kind of extrinsic media and it cannot cross into the interior space? Or do you, do you see science as being able to kind of bridge that, that divide?
0: It's a great question. I I do think that there is, you know, it's not, if, if my claim is that novels can portray consciousness or rather allow for the direct access of consciousness to these, like fake characters. Right, so I might have a favorite character, maybe, maybe say it's Harry Potter and Harry Potter is is uh is sad or something like that and I can literally his sadness is as real within the world, the imaginary world of the novel as say his bed or his or the chair that he's sitting on, right? They're, they're all like directly right. referable, which is not true within say the movie Harry Potter or within that if a, a person uh, <laughs> whose name happened to be Harry Potter. If you ever met that person in real life, uh, you, you also wouldn't have access to that. So, but access is not the same thing as like, so, so access and reference is not necessarily the same as like actually providing a space for within the natural world. So mm-hmm. I, what I don't want to end up endorsing is some sort of paradox where I say novels can access consciousness and science cannot. Right. Right because uh, obviously novels are just some words on a page. you know it, it, it's it's there's no magic there in terms of extrinsic drift, I certainly think that science probably quantifies as qualifies as extrinsic in that sense. Um, I do think that one can think of things as in terms of how much attention they pay to individual consciousness. And classify them based off of that, and how important they place consciousness in terms of what they're interested in, what they're motivated by. So that's yeah. very vague. So let me let me get really specific about it. So as an example, I I really think that film is an extrinsic medium, and, and novels an intrinsic one. So film, I think that the best thing that ever happened to film was Freud, by far. Ooh. Uh, because Freud basically hypothesize, uh, that people are responding and I'm, I'm butchering Freud a little bit, but <laughs> just using him as a stand in here that people
2: are I'm happy to butcher Freud here.
0: Yeah. Okay. He, uh, so his, in, in Freudian theory, right? You are generally, your current behaviors are symptomatic of some trauma, that occurred, and you need to then work through trauma. In fact, that this is like the basic of therapy. This is the basis of therapy. Right. Maybe not like cognitive behavioral therapy, like the very technical forms of therapy, but like generally the notion of talk therapy, right? Yeah. And Freud is the best thing to ever happen to TV because when you have this notion that people's actions are determined by traumas, that means that you have a notion that people's actions are determined by previous extrinsic events that occurred. Mm. So that way you can draw a line between people's behaviors and things that you that have occurred in the real world that you can then reference. Right. So in other words, the hero needs to overcome his father's death, right, like in The Lion King, right? Like all, almost all movies basically adhere to this notion that you can show this extrinsic trauma and then you can kind of make the emotional life of the characters as extrinsic as possible by framing, moving from one extrinsic event, which are like things that actually happen in the world, not like thoughts or feelings, to another one, right? So yeah. therefore like Simba's father dies and that's why he won't go back to the kingdom, right? And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? and then like Nalia or Naya or the female lioness, yeah, she comes right, rescues Simba and kind of convinces him to get over the death of his father. And even when he's having, like, his spiritual vision, he has to see his father in the clouds, right? He has to see this extrinsic event.
1: So... It's always something you can point or, to and show ahead. another observer, right?
0: Precisely. So so what Freud and a lot of, like, contemporary uh, psychological notions have very reductive extrinsic notions of human behavior. And I I can't tell whether or not the, the influence goes both ways, right? Like, maybe... Um, as movies got more popular, people became much more sympathetic to extrinsic um, explanations of people's behavior. And in fact, basically, if if I had to criticize literary fiction as a as a, effectively a genre, mm-hmm. you know, literary fiction is basically a whole big reveal about some extrinsic trauma that then explains the character. Like this is the trope right. of a fiction that, like, oh, the person. Is closed off to emotions because they were once hurt by this other thing that we can show in a flashback, yeah. right? Anything that you can show in a flashback is extrinsic,
2: right? <laughs> if you yeah. go
0: back and you read older novelists, people who are writing before, um, before Freud, before uh, and before film, I-, I would be willing to bet that and this is true just from some specific examples but of course i can't have a general proof of this that there is a lot less explanation of people's behavior people just are the way that they are and they feel the things that they feel and their explanations and their behaviors based off of feelings that they have but it's not based off of some extrinsic event that happened to them characters aren't blank slates yeah uh, you can see this for example like pride and prejudice there is a sense in which her her family who are all like neurotic and kind of crazy are just the way that they are. And they all have these very distinct personalities and there's no like explainer that's going to be revealed for about why people are the way they are. And so I, so I do think that in terms of what I meant originally by something like extrinsic drift and I'm probably saying it better now than I did originally in the essay, mainly because getting anything like the kinds of things that I publish published are, is incredibly difficult. Yeah. Right. And you're always in a big fight over length and scope <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and you can only uh, fight so much. So uh, what I would say is that there is this sort of extrinsic drift that occurs within our culture where people are more and more willing to attribute human motivation and accept extrinsic motivators for human behavior in such a way that really kind of makes consciousness kind of irrelevant. So consciousness gets a smaller and smaller place at the table. Yeah. Not just in terms of its representation, like the fact that so many more people watch TV now than they than they do read novels, right? So mm-hmm. not just in terms of its representation, but even in terms of how it's used to explain human behavior. Right. It gets less and less and less over time. So and that's one of the reasons I think one of the reasons I think that is because we have come up with such very good extrinsic technology, right? We've had a huge amount of technological right advancement in the extrinsic realm and basically no advancement in the intrinsic realm. So it's kind of being outcompeted. But I do think that we're we're in some sense, along multiple dimensions, drifting away from consciousness, both as an explanation for how people behave, and also as kind of something that has importance within our culture and that we pay attention to and that we care about representing the, the details of.
1: Yeah, one of the ways you were talking about the interior experience was there is something that it is like to be a human being. So there's something that it's like for me to be Oshan right now in this moment and you for Eric and that each human being and even each sentient creature to some kind of degree has this subjective sense of what it's like and um, that that's something that gets lost. I think about that a lot in terms of economics and, and technology actually gives a really interesting example because I think it's so interesting to look at the rise of what's called uh, human centered design which is recent like this has come up in the past like 20 or 30 years and even on on just the first wikipedia descriptor page the way they describe um human-centered design and technology is designing um designing technology along each step of the process to include the human perspective which is an interesting way to put it to me because it suggests that prior to that we we didn't whatsoever you know we didn't factor into To the production line, how is this engaging with with the interior sense of what it's like to be a human being, and so much of so much of that world and technology today? Now the conversation is drifting towards kind of how we engage um, with the underlying logic of something like you know the social media platforms or any kind of technology interface, and the kind of feedback loops between perception and these interfaces are are creating certain forms of consciousness or at least kind of encouraging particular ways that it that it feels to exist. And I'm both really fascinated and happy that there's this kind of move in each domain to re-include the human perspective and to kind of shift that conversation back to, well, how do these things interact with that interior feeling of what it's like? Um, but it's also been so long. Like, even if you look at uh, economics, there's, you know, a big kind of, pushback of heterodox or, or radical economics going on right now. And it, it could just as well be described as, as human-centered economics of asking the question again, like, okay, but how is all this development making us feel? What's the interaction with feedback loops to to alter, you know, the this sense of what it's like to be? Uh, so it's, it's a really interesting way to, to describe that shift, I think. I, I really like that term, extrinsic drift.
0: Uh. Yeah. No, those those are some interesting examples. I I had not really thought about uh, economics in that sense, but I I suppose one certainly could. So so definitely one of the examples you brought up, social media. I think one could give quite a good argument concerning this, which is that you can kind of think of extrinsic drift as a spectrum, wherein it gets harder to directly infer the conscious state's and intentions of the people you're interacting with. So, an example would be like characters in a novel. Their minds are directly viewable. You can generally infer their their their, their intentions incredibly well because the author has direct access to their minds. Mm-hmm. They did that. They they had that access, by the way, because they created those characters within their own minds. So they're avoiding the problem of other minds by creating minds within their own minds, which <laughs> are viewable. So every fiction author is like this walking. Um, you know, Escher drawing if we, if you we think about that spectrum, then it's clear that any time that it gets more difficult to infer the consciousness of someone, we should kind of call it extrinsic drift. so mm. as a simple example, right, if I'm talking to you face to face, it's going to be a lot easier for me to infer your consciousness and your con so therefore your consciousness is kind of going to matter more to me and that it's going to be more determinant in how I And how I understand your actions. Right. So if if, and, and this is probably why face to face conversations are always so much easier, like if you want to talk about a difficult political subject, you know, find someone who a good person who disagrees with you and then talk about it with them face to face. And what will probably happen is that you'll you'll get along. But if you take that same person and then you have a telephone call with them, it gets harder. Right. Right. And then you take that same person, you put them on social media. Now you're just this like stream of tweets. Right. And I can't <laughs> infer almost anything about your consciousness from that. Yeah. So there's a sense in which one could attribute all the nastiness that I think very few people now deny that has enveloped our culture in particularly on social media as a function of sometimes some sort of extrinsic drift where it's very, very easy for you to imagine that this person, let's say someone who disagrees with you or votes for someone you don't like, etc., that that person does not really have a consciousness because they've been stripped down to just this stream of tweets. So they're like a human, they're like a zombie basically to you. Yeah, right. And so you can just, you're free to hate them, right? Whereas if you ever met them in person, they'd be so real and breathing and I think far more important than that level of detail. So, so generally people have given this argument And they've given this argument in terms of, well, you have this extra level of detail so you can tell what people's intentions, you can can infer, sorry, you can infer the meaning of their statements better, right? Because I could like read your facial expressions. So I can tell you're not angry when you made like this declarative statement. But I think there's that. But it's also that when you're stripped of consciousness, I then also have basically no empathy for you. So there's a sense in which that the state we now find ourselves, this permanent culture war, uh, is maybe a function of extrinsic drift and of replacing communication technology and things that it gets harder and harder to infer the consciousness of others until you're basically a a phenomenological zombie uh, to me, and therefore you have no moral worth, and therefore you know I can do and say incredibly mean things. And people do do that, right? They go on social media and they find like some actor who's a real person somewhere, right? And they say like terrible, terrible things to that person. And And most, and those people sleep fine at night, and they do it because they 've never seen this person before in their life, right, right? and they 've never had to interact with them as a a consciousness like within the universe
1: yeah i I was just reading an essay uh by Adam Gopnik in, in The New Yorker, where he 's talking about. The internet is basically bringing on what he called uh, the age of the inverted self. But he had a, a snippet from that that's exactly what you're saying. He said that uh, a social network is crucially different from a social circle. It's like the network being the kind of extrinsically mediated kind of social media platform, whereas a social circle is the in-person kind of uh, interaction. And he said, since the function of a social circle is to curb our appetites and of a network to extend them. So almost said it's, it's easier to kind of bring out these... These uh, darker recesses of, I don't know if our minds, our appetites, whatever it is, in a place where we're not directly interfacing with a human that we're forced to consider in this kind of consciousness to consciousness way. It's, it's way easier, like you're saying, if we're assuming we're interacting with a zombie.
0: Yeah. And I think a, a dark view of Twitter and Facebook, right, is that it replaces all social relationships with P zombies. Right. It's And by the way, maybe we should give a brief explanation of what what a zombie is. Uh, A P-zombie or a phenomenological zombie is this idea of a human being, something that in in some possible universe where that being acts, talks, says exactly the same thing as a real human being, but they completely lack conscious awareness. There is nothing going on inside them. This is kind of like you're imagining that their brain is, going from one state to another you know neurons are turning each other on and off but there is no associated awareness of it the interesting thing one of the interesting things about zombies is that they as a logical conception one of the problems that the science of consciousness faces is that as a logical conception they're actually pretty reasonable and that many people are like yeah i can completely imagine that that you know someone's brain is firing but everything's going on in the dark one kind of terrifying consequence of these imaginary beings is that in that kind of imaginary universe those moral those zombies don't seem to have a lot if any moral worth in that you know even though they might you know beg and plead uh for for you to say not kill them uh, yeah. killing them would be about the equivalent of you know moving one inanimate object to from one location to another it just has has no real meaning right it's like breaking a breaking a stone apart or something right. so you know yeah what what one way to maybe phrase what social media has done is kind of transform our social relationships from networks of of real beings who are conscious and we can directly we can infer their consciousness quite well because when you're in person humans are trained to do that using theory of mind to beings which to be to being a social web filled with beings whom we really cannot infer their consciousness but we still interact with them in incredibly complex ways, right? We can like have a whole debate with them online, but then we can't infer their mental status, right? As we're doing that, or it's extremely difficult. We have far less information. And so we're, they're basically moving towards zombies. They have this extrinsic drift towards being like these zombies. And therefore we, we value them morally so much less than say, you know, just the way that we did in the nineties.
2: Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of, Kind of the interior experience and conscious space. I wanted to ask a question. Uh, I I pulled a quote, one thing that you wrote about consciousness, and I want to contrast it with another one of my favorites and and spring a question out of that. Uh, You wrote that your whole life will unfold as an exploration of this space, speaking about consciousness. Uh, moving through a cathedral so multitudinous in its dimensions it would require transfinite mathematics to even begin to define. So this idea that consciousness on the interior is this massive, vast, kind of, you know, unexplored landscape. Um, And it's a very similar idea that's coming out of one of my favorite philosophers, uh, Thomas Metzinger, who wrote, uh, because of its many dimensions, again speaking about conscious experience, The number of possible conscious states for a human being is incredibly large. We are only rarely aware of this fact, and we haven't really started to systematically test how we might deliberately alter our state space so as to enhance our autonomy and increase experiential forms of self-knowledge, ideally backed by the rigor of modern-day neuroscience. All to say that I... In my experience of reading those two things side by side, they start out saying the same thing, that consciousness is this huge space that we can explore, there's all kinds of different ways to go about it, all kinds of different conscious states to find. The move that he pulls at the end that I find interesting is he says that if we do this, this is what we're doing it for. We might enhance autonomy or increase uh, what he calls experiential self-knowledge. What I wanted to ask you was when you think about that idea of exploring consciousness and, and all the different possibilities... Do you have any notion or any idea of, I don't want to say value judgment, but but what is there to find there? Is there any kind of objectively um, preferable or desirable thing to come out of it? Or is it more of just a, a possibility if we have the space, might as well go exploring? Or is there kind of more of a, you know, do we do it for something?
0: Wow, an interesting question. Um, one, I would say that there is a sense in which we explore the space of conscious experiences every time we do anything. So if you watch a movie, right, uh, every frame of that movie is going to look different from every other frame, right? And you right. can imagine in that scenario that we kind of begin, you know, begin describing your consciousness in terms of these axes, like a spectrum, kind of like sliding knobs that you could play with. Like, for example, there are some that are really easy, like like hot and cold. Right. Like you can be really hot. You can be really cold. That basically uh, requires just a single uh, dimension. Right. And then you could uh, add in add in more things like things can be distant and they could be near. Right. And so on. So you begin to add in all these axes that describe your phenomenology. And of course, you know, what you end up with is something with an insanely large number of axes as a space. Right. A very high dimensional space. Right. Now you can imagine that if you watch a movie, it would be like you're moving along a trajectory of points within that high dimensional space. Now, so there's a sense in which every day, right, we're, we're kind of exploring the space in that we are where we are. Our consciousness is always defined at some point and it's within and that point is in some trajectory um, now there's another sense of exploration right which is i think similar but a little bit different which is what thomas messenger is talking about um and that is so let's say we added a new axis which might be say like adding a new um uh, sense to being human like right? there are some people who put like magnets in their palms like bio- biohackers and then mm-hmm. they can kind of sense a magnetic field now that's That they're still doing that through touch, you know, or you know, vibration. So it's it's not quite the same, but probably at some point we'll have the technology to be able to add new senses to to humans. I mean, I don't think that that there's there's nothing that seems to rule that out. Although of course that doesn't mean it's really going to happen because that. People use that as a as a stand-in, right? They're like, "Well, this technology seems possible, so it's going to happen." It's like, "Well, <laughs> you know, like uh, you know, if you just look at history, like that has not been true, right? right. Like, the technologies that happen are some incredibly specific subset of the things that that could be developed." But um, if you kind of assume that, then then it could very well be the case. I, mean, I think he's even talking about things that go beyond, say, adding another sense. I, I think he's talking about things like. Imagine trying to construct a being that has far better self-control, maybe even self-control over their own conscious states. Just like we could say, make ourselves sleepy, uh, you know, if you wanted to, right? Or energetic, like you could, you could kind of pump yourself up if you really need to, right? Or you could make yourself fall asleep. Most people have that level of control over themselves, right? So what is that? That's consciousness. That, that's kind of you modulating your own your own uh, consciousness at that point, right? So I think what he's talking about is imagine a being that has, can do that to a, an extreme degree. So it's like imagine you wanted to focus instead of kind of our primitive methods of making ourselves focus, you could just unerringly focus for hours and hours and hours, right, or so on. Right. What, what I would say is that m- there are many, many like psychonauts, like people who do explore conscious which I would refer to this as regions of the space of possible conscious experiences that are very different from our day-to-day regions. Yeah. So, psychonauts, who, let's say somebody who likes to do lots of acid or some sort of hallucinogen, right? Right. Uh, They want to go explore this part of the conscious state space that you really can't access in normal day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. But it exists right in that in the sense that you can go and access it. So, so so I do think that he he is talking what I'm talking about is maybe something like the normal uh, conscious activity. And what he's talking about is we have normal conscious activity, but we have not really gotten to the point where we're starting to think about, OK, so how might we change that to optimize some function?
1: Right. Right.
0: Which is kind of a scary place.
1: Yeah, it, it gets kind it. of It's like a wilderness. Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a thought experiment that I, I find interesting in the sense. Uh, it was Shinzen Young, who's a meditation teacher, who tries, it brings in science a lot. He was giving a talk at Google, uh, I think it was 10 years ago. And there's a clip of um, where he's speaking, and he, and he offers him a thought experiment. And at this point, he'd been meditating for I don't know, like 40 years or something, and lived in Japan, did that whole thing. And he says, if you came to me with an ultimatum, Or anybody like me who's been meditating for as long as I have and you gave us two choices choice one is to live out one more day to live tomorrow in this consciousness that I have cultivated and and kind of put together through diligent practice or option two is to live out the rest of my life maybe 20 30 40 years in the kind of conscious configuration pre meditation he says unflinchingly without a doubt every time he would take the one day in his consciousness as opposed to the, you know, have her many decades out. And um, I, I try to make sense of that and I've been really wrestling with that. But I wonder to someone like you coming from where you're coming from, especially with the kind of scientific basis, how how does that kind of thought experiment land with you?
0: I'd never heard that before. That's That's an interesting statement. It's a big um, claim, yeah. One thing I will say is that in terms of meditation, there are plenty of people who claim that it does help them and that it does change the internal workings of their minds. For example, I, had a, I have a friend who has been doing um, meditation, particularly meditation where you're kind of focused on your own thoughts. Mm-hmm. And he's claimed that it's kind of altered his conscious perception. Now, my guess would be that if it was immensely functional, right, we would see you know, all the meditators – you know, kind of take over, right? Right. Right. Um, you know, there's always kind of like fundamental limits on how effective anything is in, in humans. Right. Because if it was, if, if there were immensely effective techniques and then like, say for accomplishing tasks, right. Then almost everyone would use them. Like, an right. example is coffee, right? Like co- coffee actually probably is an insanely effective technique for modulating your own consciousness right and you can tell it's insanely effective because everyone does it
2: right Um, it spreads yeah
0: I don't doubt these subjective claims that some people have that meditation has kind of changed their control over their own consciousness in that for example if they're feeling very stressed perhaps it might be very easy for them to kind of enter this uh, state uh, that um, like maybe a philosopher like Husserl will call it bracketing, where they're kind of viewing their own conscious experience, realizing that this is just something that's manipulable and that they can say, okay, let's calm down now and enter into a calmer state. And it's much easier for them to do that than, say, someone who hasn't had training. So let's imagine that that's the case. I I don't disbelieve that that's possible. Um, I do think that probably most people, if they had to choose between living a day in the – life of uh, a meditator's mind versus a day in the life of albert einstein's mind (laughs) Uh, they would probably choose albert einstein you know i I think minds this is actually something i've i've written about in other cases that that minds uh, there probably are some ways that you can kind of rank minds in general along some functions but most of the time minds are actually quite specialized and that there are no kind of, so this is maybe where I would disagree with Messenger, is that I don't think that there are kind of like universally extremely good minds. I think people are very good at different
1: things. Right, right. And it, it's similar to the discussion that goes on between the contrast of psychedelics and meditation. Like you were saying, if if what Shinzen is talking about were both true and easy, everyone would be doing it. And one way that I've, I've made sense of it is a lot of people will take psychedelics and be blown away, be like, wow, you know, the... Whatever their experience is, but then a couple of days, you're you're right back to where you were, um, and the kind of saying is that meditation goes to try to stabilize some some variant of that experience or makes it a little more sustainable. But it's a seriously um, time-consuming, difficult process to put in put in the work you know that goes into that kind of meditation, and it it reminds me of what you were talking about with. Uh, reading a book or consuming um, consuming TV in in your essay, you know, Fiction in the Age of the Screens, that it's strange to me, but it's true that I can go home and binge watch like six hours of The Wire, which is considered really, really great television. Pretty much no problem. You know, that's not going to be like a cognitively demanding task. I'm not worried about my ability to to do that. But it would be difficult for me to to go home and read six hours of of Tolstoy, or even to or certainly to meditate for six hours. So there's this kind of trade off between, I don't know, ease of access or barriers of entry, and and maybe the payoffs. And I certainly don't think that everybody should can just start meditating, you know, for forty years and and that'll be no sweat, <laughs> you know.
0: So I think one thing that separates me from a lot of contemporary writers is that. And maybe this is not true. This is not as unique as I think, which is that these TV shows, especially since like we had new golden age TV since around 2000 with, I think the Sopranos begins either in 2000 or 2001. And since, and then we had Mad Men, The Wire, um, just a, a kind of a litany of really, really, really good shows. Shows that are doing things in terms of character development that it used to only be the purview of novels to do. Mm, right. That you cannot mount a defense of the novel based off of the level of art that it's achieving. Like You, you cannot do that because these shows are achieving that level. So, so, for example, if you defend the novel in terms of character depth, there is simply no way that your novel is going to have the depth of character that something like Don Draper has. Right. I mean, for one, we're with Don Draper for something like ninety hours. Right. It, that's an insanely long time. Like no no novel takes ninety hours to read. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, it's like three days straight of reading. Um. Like maybe like a comparison might be like Infinite Jest. Yeah. Right. Um, but infinite jazz with Don Gately, right? I mean, how much time do you really spend with Don Gately? You spend a good amount, but but you don't spend that much. So in terms of just like say depth of characterization or say the intricacy of plot or say reflecting on real world events. So for example, for some people their measure of artistic success is some sort of political statement. You can certainly make those with T V. You can certainly make um you can certainly make big question statements, right? You can you can speculate about the meaning of life with a TV show. You can. You, there are very, very few things you cannot do. The one thing that I think you cannot do is directly refer to people's consciousnesses, and yeah. that does mean that there is always some sliver, right, of things that it's that's easier to do with a novel. Uh, not just easier to do, but better to do. That you just do not have the access to do it. The other difference is, of course, the obvious one, which is that one is in terms of language. So if you like beautiful language, then, of course, novels are going to be more interesting to you than TV shows, or at least you'll still sometimes add in novels. But I, I think certainly the justification for novels is not so much as these other medium media cannot be art or we're lacking high art. It just that justification has gone out the window. And when it goes out the window you are left with the the very difficult question, which is that, you know, why should anyone spend the time? Because as you said, it is difficult to say, read Tolstoy. And I think the, the only answer that one can give would be something like, I enjoy art that has something to do with consciousness, that has some relationship to consciousness that I cannot get in some other form. And that is provable that you can't get it in the other forms. Like, I mean, there's basically like a simple philosophical proof that you can kind of give that you can't you can't get it through extrinsic media. You know, of course, the issue with that is that, you know, you you probably would never need all your art to be like that. So, like, my hope is that the novel can kind of continue to survive and, and thrive within the 21st century. But it's never going to achieve the dominance that it once did. Right. Ever.
1: Yeah, that's a good um that's a good pivot into your most recent essay, the on the Baffler uh, enter the Enter the Super Sensorium. I mean, I had such a visceral response to reading this, I'm not even sure where to begin. So I thought maybe I'd just kind of put that ball in your court with what this essay was about. I mean, I you got a lot into the distinction between entertainment and art, but where where did that essay come from for you? Was that something you'd been thinking about for a long time? Was there kind of a boiling point where you had an idea or a kind of impetus that caused you, all right, I got to write this?
0: So uh, I think like many others of the millennial generation, you know, I grew up with video games. So I grew up with these sources of entertainment that were, to be frank, often overwhelming. And I think we do a very, very poor job of talking about this, but is certainly true. And I was always managed to kind of um you know limit myself in some sort of fundamental way but you know the number of you know smart young men i knew in in high school this was in the 90s like you know early 2000s um you know who would go home and play six hours of starcraft right was huge as much as we like, on one hand, no one wants to be the old man yelling uh, about how much time people spend <laughs> on video games, right? That is the figure that is made fun of, you know, in all Simpsons episodes, right? Like, our, our culture is treats, you know, advice like that as anathema. But on the other hand, um, and, and, and it's also supported by the idea that all media and all art forms are equivalent. And this notion is based off of, um, it's a postmodernist notion. It's based off of the idea that me, that when people consume media, they do it in order to reflect their social status. So for example, you know, someone, the elite read more books than the poor. Why is that? You know, well, one reason is to just signal that they're elite, right? It has nothing to actually do with the thing itself. Right. Um, this is an argument advanced by like Pierre Bordeaux and like a few, a lot of like kind of the the French postmodernists kind of give critiques of, of culture along similar lines. And the notion of high culture has fallen into the lowest level of kind of support that it ever has. Right. Just in terms of if if you go into a standard college campus uh, and you sit down in, in like an advanced lit class and you make the statement that like some forms of art are superior to others, you will get laughed at, or people will start right. targeting. right? right? <laughs> we're, we're we're definitely within that realm of like you, you cannot be elitist by talking about superiority. At the same time, we have this technological advancement that has made uh, things like computer games, things like TV, think these extrinsic media which are technologically evolving incredibly quickly. They have become insanely good and we've done for experience what had previously been done for the supermarket you know it used to be that you got your food from different places right and kind of the limiting factor you know if you you, it, and you know you had to there was like a milkman who came right you might go to the baker to get some bread you might right uh but you didn't there was never you know, there was no such thing as just a store that you could walk into and purchase everything you needed to purchase to eat. The right one-stop there. shop, yeah. The one-stop shop, right? And that is literally the invention of the supermarket and it was this huge change to culture. And now, if, of course, if you know that obesity since then has basically been climbing and climbing and climbing. Mm, right. Maybe one reason, right, is that there are supermarkets. It's so easy to go and get food, right? It's, it's absurd. Like any, someone from, a thousand BC would just be like their mind would explode if they saw two hundred. <laughs> It'd be like you, you live in the greatest of luxuries, right? Now I think that it was only recently that the—you know—we used to have TV, but you were very—you were limited by channels. You were limited by what was on. You couldn't really change things. You know, um, you know there were you know fifty channels, hundred channels even, right? It's like okay, you're really going to find something that's amazing that you really wanted to do. What happened recently was that all these things became integrated into what I call the super sensorium, which I think functionally now, like any laptop is a good representation of the supersensorium, And that you have this screen that can now produce any form of entertainment you want in an incredibly flexible way. And it's all right there. So it's very similar to the supermarket, right? Yeah. Uh, and that advancement, I mean, uh, actually, one of the reasons was because I bought an Xbox (laughs) and I I really didn't know like how much the technology had advanced.
1: You didn't know what you were in for
0: until I bought this Xbox and I turned it on and I was literally shocked that I could watch Netflix through the Xbox. Mm -hmm. Like that was like a shock to me because I was like, wait a minute, this thing, right? I can like, it's just these icons, right? And you just click on the icons and you get entertained. So to me... It's like we finally arrived technologically, maybe it's not a single device, but one can say that we all have this super sensorium at our fingertips, which it does for entertainment, what supermarkets have done. And I think that that puts us in a lived position that directly conflicts with the idea that there are no rankings between uh, among art, right? like among consumption of media. Yeah, And that if, if you, in your own life, don't at least try, you know, and it's always going to be a losing battle, just like it's always a losing battle with food, right? It's like everyone, everyone in developed nations, most people probably eat a little bit too much, you know, mm-hmm. or have that extra piece of cake when you didn't need to, right? But it's a battle, right? And so in, in a similar, you know, scenario now, uh, For We're we're in a similar scenario now for for entertainment. And I think the the remedy is art. So it's like as long as you can be trying to consume a certain amount of things that you really feel are artistic, are like high-level products that are artistic in this way, along a spectrum in which you would denote the lowest end of the spectrum as like hackneyed entertainment that is completely mindless and like much more intelligent stuff, Right at the upper end that you would view as artful or um or interesting or that you'd be willing to say you know actually there there was a, a a real like meaning behind this, and I would you know rank this thing along the spectrum unless you are committed to consuming that high end of the spectrum, you will spend all your time down at the low end of the spectrum, and I think the lower end of the spectrum is actually even more kind of addictive, so yeah y- you have a very good argument you know it's like how many episodes of like The Wire can maybe The Wire is not a perfect example, but what would be a really kind of mind blowing TV show? Like I think Mad yeah. Men. That, yeah, I, Friday I agree, Night Lights I, like, is up there. Friday Night Lights, maybe like, I, like just things that yeah you could binge, but you feel that if you're binge, you are binge, you're missing it a little bit. Like right. the shows that you're like, okay, I'm gonna part, parcel this out a little bit, right? Um, versus like if you're you know streaming you know CSI or something like that, you can just go, right, you just go to the next one, go to the next one. So I think that there's this direct conflict between that basically everyone in the humanities department would make about how there's no actual spectrum to art, and then the way that people live our lives. And then the mess up thing is that if people, the people who have strong beliefs about art and consumption and use that to influence their own consumption are going to do better, just like food, right? Like it's imagine if we go around telling everyone that oh it's fine to eat whatever you want whenever you want right but then in secret all kind of the elite people all kind of <laughs> watch it, right it's yeah. like well you've created immensely unequal society right because you've been lying to everybody that there's no spectrum along of healthy foods right Yep. so anyway so so, so i think that the, the, the motivation for writing it was to point out that we're we're, we're developing it's a slow-moving crisis where people are going to have to develop this immunity. And the immunity is an aesthetic spectrum. Like if you feel disgusted by yourself at having watched eight <laughs> episodes of CSI in a row, right? That's good because, yeah, right. <laughs> because it means that you have this, you have an immune system, you have some sort of immune system. And the people who have an aesthetic spectrum will have a bit of an immune system and that will help them. And so the people who say like, there is no such thing, there is no way to rank these things. It's like, okay, but then there's like no way to live our lives right it's just impossible because the amount of you can have infinite entertainment your entire life for 999 a month
1: right it's like um i'm thinking about the supermarket example and and how things have progressively become one-stop shops i mean that's something that's been going on I don't know how far you can trace it back, but even if you look at Ford with the assembly line when it started happening on a physical way with with products and the mass production of goods, that carried on into what you know, a lot of people, the Frankfurt School, are called the culture industry, where you took that same idea of mass production, of ramping up the scale and, and kind of giving everyone the same thing from the same place, and, and it, it switched over to entertainment, it switches over so that all these stimuli, all the all the inputs, all the media that we begin interacting with becomes the same thing it's everywhere and it's the same and it's all at once when you think about that from the perspective of you know exploring all the possible conscious spaces the the worry that i get out of that is it promotes us to all explore a very similar kind of uniform space like a it almost reifies a certain bandwidth of consciousness and we're all in the same little bandwidth because we're all responding reacting and consuming to the same stuff, produced the same way that we get in the same place, um, and and I don't know if I was if we were able to articulate it earlier, but I do think there's some kind of value in a kind of diverse exploration of that interior space, and so I, I think a lot about how to culture the kind of breaking from that homogenization, kind of breaking from that one-stop shop of all media consumption that is the same going on everywhere all the time. One one way that I, that you wrote to, to kind of differentiate between those that I thought was really interesting is, is you gave the etymology of entertainment, which means to to maintain or to keep someone in a certain frame of mind, whereas you said that art changes us. So that kind of dichotomy built between the two of them. I'm wondering if there's any neuroscientific or kind of brain kind of correlates that we have to those two different experiences? Like, can we look at the kind of aesthetic experience of art compared to entertainment from a scientific perspective?
0: So that's what I'm, I think, arguing within the addresses the super sensorium essay is, is exactly that. And what I'm trying to do is, first of all, neuroscience is not nearly that advanced. Right. It's unclear like, let's say you do notice a brain difference. How do you say one is better? Right. Right. Like maybe, maybe you say, oh, this one has more entropy or you, you assign some sort of objective function, but it's, it's unclear exactly how that is going to translate. So what I tried to do was ask, so is there any way in which fictions, and by that I mean both fictions like novels, but also TV shows, etc., do have some sort of biological, physiological meaning? And I think that they do, and my ar- argument is that that dreams are literally fictions, and that fictions are literally dreams. And I mean to take that almost as literally as possible. Right. Right. So it, it's not just saying, oh, there, there's kind of this association where dreams are kind of fiction-like, and so on. It's like, no, no, no. What, what I literally mean is <laughs> that every imagine that every Early mammal, right Who we know dreams where we don't reptiles might not dream right so so dinosaurs might not have been dreaming, but like early mammals or so on that what is going on is that they literally have some sort of super sensorium that their brain creates every single night where they go through all these weird experiences and tell little stories and it's very clear that animals you know do that if you've ever seen a dog running in its sleep. Right, that it's it's right. clearly it's you like know, doing something. Yeah. yeah, it's it's clearly it's doing something. Right, it, it, it's enacting kind of like day to day behavior. So animal dreams are probably pretty similar to ours, and theirs have you know evolution does never messes around. Like it, <laughs> it, some people have argued that evolution leads to a lot of kludges, Um and I actually think the evidence for that is not so great. Uh, I, I think in general evolution does a pretty good job, and that it would not have made everyone spend two to three hours every night dreaming if it didn't have a really good reason and my my argument for why that is is a little bit technical and complicated but it has to do with learning and overfitting and the general idea is something like that when you learn your brain kind of moves uh begins to strengthen some connections and weaken others and that if you do the same thing too much then your brain kind of becomes overtrained. So it becomes you 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 learn things too well. You kind of get into a, a neural rut, and that dreams, by being so kind of weird, hallucinatory, or just more importantly outside of your day-to-day experience, um shake up the overtrained brain mm. because overtraining is a really big problem for neural networks, so you know, perhaps it is for the brain as well. And therefore it kind of acts as basically a source of of noise, right? It's like suddenly, Rather than you just being you uh, and and only learning and, and kind of learning your day to day, like imagine having the most repetitive life ever, right? Where it's like you wake up, same room, you put on your shoes, you brush you, you brush, you brush your teeth, you put on your shoes, you go to work, you work. Your work is incredibly monotonous and automated. You go home, you stare at the wall, you go back to bed. Right? Sounds like
1: Office Space.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Sounds like some, some <laughs> jobs. Um, I think that probably no human actually, I mean, we, people go, would go insane with that level of boredom. Um, and maybe prisoners in, in isolation might, might experience something like this, where I, I really think that my guess is that that's actually probably pretty damaging for your brain. And what's going on is that you're just, you're overtraining your brain to just be doing this this one task, which is the only thing that it's really doing. And you're losing generality. Right. You're losing uh, all these um, capabilities that we know that neural networks can lose when you overtrain them on a particular set of data. So my hypothesis is just that life, the actual day-to-day of life, is not a diverse enough training set for the brain. And I mean that for both adult humans and, and mammals. Now, I would say this is a complete hypothesis, right? <laughs> like So yeah. I, I think it fits as well with most of the empirical research on dreams that I have been able to, to look at and find. I don't think that the contemporary other scientific theories of consciousness – about sorry, scientific theories of dreaming are very good. <laughs> um, I think hmm. that most of them are. They're, they're things like, oh, you you replay the day's events, and so your 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 brain trains more. And I think that that's wrong. I think it's a misunderstanding of learning to think that you need to you need to train your synapses more over something. It's like no, you need to avoid overtraining. So so anyway so so I think that this is as acceptable as most hypotheses that are out there about how dreams work and then the idea would be is that well so obviously there are some good dreams and some bad dreams right and what is a good dream a good dream is the thing that fulfills the function that dreams have right whatever right. that function is and if that function I think is probably to avoid overtraining then right. probably you know the things that are more different from you your day to day life are better right so a good dream might be like a really weird dream or kind of an out there dream or kind of a complex interesting different dream bad dream would just be like you wake up you brush your teeth you put on your shoes you go to work right yeah right. <laughs> that's like the worst dream right? <laughs> right. so you can rank dreams right and dreams are fictions so th- therefore we, we can maybe we can kind of think about well maybe people in their day-to-day lives one of the reasons they like consuming fiction so much is not just because they're easy and entertaining whatever that really means but maybe it's because they fulfill the same biological role of actual dreams
2: right
0: and that as our world has complexified uh you know the more complex a model is the easier it is to overtrain something on it the urge that humans have to consume fiction right is not so much a we want to be doing nothing and be entertained i mean that's probably a huge part of it but maybe another part maybe like the most primordial basic drive for that is that we want something that will shake up our overtrained brains, yeah. and we have drive for it, and the, the, the dream drive, um, and so, if that's true, and then you can kind of make this comparison of, well, wait a minute, we can rank good dreams and bad dreams, then, you know, fictions that we consume, like a TV show, that's like a waking dream, right? It's like, you're kind of there, you're observing, there's stuff that's completely different from your own life, mm-hmm. because it's very strange, like, why would, why would intelligent organisms sit around listening to lies, <laughs> cuz that's what a tv show is. It's just a bunch of lies. It's like Buffy the Vampire Slayer went to go do acts with her friends, right? It's like that none of that happened, right? It's all lies. There's, there's a pack <laughs> of lies, right? And right? And then humans are like, "No, yeah, we're going to spend a bunch of time listening to these lies and then also like have, you know, getting into the characters who are like completely fictional characters and stuff like that." So it's like, why would we spend all our time memorizing stuff that didn't happen? Right. It just does not make any sense. So probably the reason why is because, again, we, there's, there's some actual reason, which is that we, Bobby the Vampire Slayer we, lives a very different life from you. She has very different experiences. So it kind of shakes up your, your brain and avoids you from, from getting overtrained on your own life, uh, which may be you know, incredibly boring. And probably the more boring people's lives are, then the more they want to watch uh, they want to avoid overtraining, so therefore they watch more. So then, the more boring their lives become because they're watching TV. And,
1: it's a vicious cycle.
0: <laughs> yeah, precisely. But anyway, to, just to go back to the very original point of the uh, question was, you know, in in terms of justifying an aesthetic spectrum, right? Based off of something kind of similar to how you might justify a good or a bad dream, right? right? That if you're if you're just watching incredibly boring, repetitive um uh TV shows, then it's like you're dreaming very bad dreams. Um by bad I mean I mean poor at their function of his dream.
1: Right. The idea of dreams serving as a kind of uh shaking up of the habitual ruts sounds a lot like Michael Pollan. Yeah he published his his big book on psychedelics somewhat recently and when he went on the podcast circuit talking about it he used a metaphor over and over, and I thought it was, I thought it was neat. He was talking about um, imagining consciousness as a big snowy peak, and as we live, we're essentially taking a sled from the top and sledding down over and over, that as we respond to stimuli in our environment, we're forming neural pathways in response, and through neuroplasticity and everything, we're always kind of forming these pathways, which he visualizes as taking a ride down, walking back up, and riding again. And the more you ride down that peak, the more you kind of create a path in the snow. And as we all know, it's once there's a path in the snow, your sled tends to kind of drift into that path. And so each time you go down, you follow that same path over and over. And the more you go down, the more you dig it out. And for him, similar to dreams, like you're saying, he said that psychedelics were a way to essentially shake up the whole snow globe and get a new fresh pack of of pristine snow with no tracks. And then you're, you're presented with the same landscape, but now you have the ability to, to explore different routes down um, and using that as a kind of, re- not, that's not necessarily a remedy, but a really interesting and creative approach to changing your future courses or doing little nudges here and there, taking a different starting point and maybe trying to alter some of the, the habits we form along the way that tend to be um, unhelpful or undesirable in any way.
0: Yeah, that's a really good metaphor. Um, I had seen that he had done that book, but I've not actually picked it up. And it sounds like I probably should. I mean, what I'd be really interested in, so with with dreams, for instance, one of the reasons I think that avoiding overtraining, like avoiding the ruts in the snow, is that it makes it harder to generalize. So uh, this happens all the time in neural networks where the neural network, it gets really trained on one set of data. But then when you present with another set of data, because it's seen that set of the other set of data like too much, it's been, it's been too fitted to it. It now can't generalize. You know, it's like it, it was looking at cats versus dogs in one data set, and then you give it a bunch of new pictures, but they're still cats and dogs. But now it has a lot of trouble picking out the cats in that new data set versus dogs, even though it was perfect at doing that in the other data set. And that's because it, it got overtrained. Right. right. So it lacked this ability to generalize. So there's very good evidence. If you miss sleep, you end up with all sorts of cognitive problems. You can even have visual illusions, and a lot of those could be spun as problems involving too much overtraining. Yeah. So 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 basically, your your brain has just gone too long without getting this this uh, shake up, and therefore it, it begins to lose the ability to generalize, and you begin to have trouble with problem solving. You've got trouble with like all these different things. So I'd be interested to see if there's any research in psychedelics which showed that people uh, after they – like, could like for example, with sleep, what you can do is that you can show somebody a, a math problems and then have them sleep on it and then have them do the math problems. And they'll often do better than if they stayed awake during that same period of time. Mm. So I wonder if there's any sort of evidence that psychedelics do something similar in terms of learnability um, for right. a similar reason. Right. But, yeah, I mean, it, 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 one maybe way of framing this is just that, yeah, like, fictions, like TV shows, are kind of like the poor man's psychedelic in that they're super cheap, easily accessible. They don't have any kind of effects and they're not scary and so on. But they still thrust you into this fantasy world where the inputs that are coming to your brain are decorrelated from the rest of what your day-to-day life is because you're not a, 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 a night. Living in a fantasy world, fighting an evil necromancer, right? <laughs> you're, 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 you, right? And your life is, you know, probably more boring, but also, you know, very anti-correlated to that.
1: Yeah, you you referenced a study. I don't know if you remember it, but I thought it was insane about a group of scientists at uh, the University of Chicago in the '80s who devised a contraption to deprive rats of, I think it was non-REM sleep where the dreams occur, and over time that it- rem, REM REM okay, it was REM sleep where the dreams occur. And they actually died from um, lack of dreams. Is that more or less what happened?
0: Yeah, so that's you know what they're reporting. um, From my interpretation of this, now we do know that you know I have not stayed up to the absolute to date with the latest. So, so I don't know if anyone's ever been able to keep an animal alive in a and make sure that it has no dreams. Mm -hmm. Um, Generally, there's there's always difficulty in science uh, because. For example, is it the stress of the experimental paradigm, which is that they're being woken up whenever they fell into REM sleep? Or was it the actual lack of REM sleep? Right. Now, or is it like a feedback where, you know, losing REM sleep is actually very stressful, and bad, But then the paradigm is also worse. So then both are contributing to that. So I hesitate to say that we know for scientific fact like that. Right. If you just dream deprived animals, you'll kill them certainly we know it is not good for them. Like it is very, very bad. And that there have been some experimental paradigms where people have tried to do it. And then the animals died. It it also does fit well with the fact that certainly we know that sleep itself is essential. And certainly we do know that if you sleep deprive an animal long enough, it will, it will die. And the way that they die, is very strange. They they go through these different, like strange phases. Um, Humans, if you if you keep them up too long they'll be they can develop like epileptic fits i i think again probably because the, their synapses are getting too strong uh they're getting too overtrained. um they don't have that they're not being shaken out kind of appropriately um but yeah everything we know says that dreaming is probably physiologically quite essential
1: yeah the idea of uh an aesthetic spectrum or building this kind of evaluative distinction um, between entertainment and art, or just what is better than this or or worse than that. It reminds me a lot of um, a space I've been exploring that kind of lives on Twitter, kind of lives on some podcasts, um, but a word that's thrown around a lot to describe the space is metamodernism, which I was just trying to move beyond postmodernism. Um, and there's a, there's a quote from it that, that reminds me a lot of at least what I gathered from your essay. There's a, uh, I don't know what to call him, education theorist, futurist, philosopher uh, named Zach Stein. And he wrote that um, one of the things that defines the move beyond postmodernism is a reemergence of hierarchy and evaluative distinction and the reemergence of objectivity, not the simplistic modern objectivity, but an objectivity that has to do with the refraction of different perspectives so this that whole thing to me is trying to essentially systematize this kind of move to begin, I guess, judging uh, uh, snobbery essentially trying to judge yeah. things on a large scale again to say from a cultural perspective, even from a human perspective, you know that not everything is this postmodern purely relative soup and we do whatever we want and everything is permitted and everything is equally good or bad, but you know it's, uh, trying to reconstruct this this spectrum where we can look at things. And say, uh, "This is what we should do." This idea of "should" almost reemerging, you know. Um, have you? Do you th- think at all? Do, do you have any crossover with this kind of space of trying to kind of rebuild this this spectrum? Not just in in culture or not just in entertainment, but kind of on a on a philosophic level, kind of a system that tries to refill that space of a grand narrative that was deconstructed by postmodernism.
0: Yeah. So, um, I, I would say that both those essays, fiction, the age of screens, and also enter the super sensorium, which both of which should at some point, hopefully end up in some essay collection. Um, that kind of is exploring these themes. Both of those are direct attempts to try to use, um, kind of deep scientific and philosophical reasoning to justify behaviors that could be described precisely as certainly as hierarchical, Possibly as elitist, possibly even as um, as as being a snob. Right. And an example would be somebody saying, you know, like, "Oh, I don't watch much TV. I just read. I mostly just read novels." Right.
1: Yeah, I just read <laughs> like, Tolstoy.
0: Yeah, I just read Tolstoy. <laughs> so, you know, we 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 might uh, criticize that person, but the truth is, is that you can directly prove that he has far more, or he or she has far more uh, exposure to direct representation of conscious minds than an equivalent person who's watching even the best TV shows. Yeah. So and surely that has some sort of effect. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to it's always never want to you never want to get to the point where you're quantifying these things of like, oh, that person's going to be more successful. Like there's right. not a the, uh, function or causation that we care about. What we care about is, is there some sort of legitimate difference? right? Between those two things. And there provably is, and it's based off of, uh, consciousness. It's based off of the, uh, the fact that novels solve the problem of other minds. Now in the case, uh, and, and, and TV shows have, have a lot of difficulties portraying minds and are kind of trapped in the extrinsic world, just like you are day to day. Now for enters the supersensorium, the argument is, um, that we can kind of rank, uh, be- we can rank fictions between entertainment and art. And that fictions probably do have a deep biological purpose, which is something that ha- has to do with exactly with learning and keeping our brains in a state where they're learnable and they're plastic and that, yeah. and, they're general, and you can generalize. And so therefore you would then go and be able to kind of rank, you know, if, if you're, if you're, if you're producing a movie and that movie is exactly like a bunch of other movies all put together, right. Then you're, by definition, creating stimuli, which are just reinforcing the old kind of inputs and beliefs. So, so you're just overtraining again. Right? right. And that's what like that entertainment schlock is where like, you know, the the hero always gets the girl and there are bad guys and, you know, like all that
1: sort of stuff. It's which like is- the monomyth where I think it was Joseph Campbell. Right. You can find that same hero myth embedded in almost every narrative arc of all dominant movies tv shows whatever whatever you pick out
0: right but I- exactly but if you just tell that myth over and over and over again right then you're the the story that you're telling is now just as familiar as the life that you were leading so you don't get any benefit by paying attention to the story right right, right. So, so therefore you can kind of again form this kind of spectrum so i i definitely agree that i think that there are probably very good motivations for this sort of for a sort of hierarchy that could be called like you know snobbish um my you know counterpoint to that is that listen almost everyone who tries to pay attention to what they eat which is basically everyone is exhibits some form of snobbery right? right that there's a sense in which snobbery is immensely protective you're like oh, I don't, you know, how many people are like, I don't eat at McDonald's, right? (laughs) Well, for a lot of those people, they're doing that not just because they're making some sort of mental calculation about the number of calories that you get from McDonald's. It's that they like, they don't want to eat at McDonald's. They don't want that experience. And they're snobs about it, right? So they're probably kind of right to do that, Right, right. Uh, Within bounds of you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about people's individual situations and money and like all this other stuff. Like putting yeah. everything else aside, right, and just dealing with a really limited thing. There are very very good reasons to be snobby, uh, to to be a snob. Sorry, to be a snob in a land of infinite variety. And I give mm-hmm. an example, which is that um, if you imagine an alien civil, two different alien civilizations, right. And they're both going through this super sensorium phase where the super sensorium is just getting easier and it's products more entertaining and addicting, right. As it goes along. And in one of these alien civilizations, everyone is like this postmodernist who claims that, you know, there, there's no, no TV is better than any other TV show in any sort of objective sense. And you can't tell people what to do. And, you know, reading, uh, a novel is so passe because it's so much easier to just watch a TV show, et cetera. And then there's another alien civilization, which are just these, like the most, like the biggest snobs ever, right? They, right. They, they, they care so much about high art. They turn their nose up at, you know, any sort of kind of low art thing. They're, they're very kind of set in their ways. They're very hierarchical and how, they're extremely judgy, right? Which of those civilizations, is going to survive. Like which of those civilizations is going to not disappear up its own brain stem? Yeah. Right. And the answer is like the ha- the haughty aliens,
1: <laughs> the snobs right? will survive.
0: Yeah. The snobs will survive. Right. And just in a similar way that if you're completely indiscriminate in terms of how you eat, right. Like that civilization is not going to last long. You need to have coping mechanisms to develop that. And I think the a strong aesthetic spectrum is a coping mechanism that people can have. And that if our culture adopts it, it will help avert the, the, the worst aspects of the supersensorium that we are inevitably and quickly throwing ourselves into, and that is only going to evolve and become better and better and better, and that either personal aesthetic spectrums or cultural aesthetic spectrums will avert the worst of that.
1: Right. Yeah, you, on that point, uh, that was one of, I must have highlighted this seven times where you wrote that in a world of infinite experience, it is the... Aesthetic. I don't even know how to pronounce that correctly, but the one who has the aesthetic spectrum who is safest, not the ascetic. Um, abstinence will not work. The only cure for too much fiction is good fiction, and that really stuck with me because on a personal level, um, after I graduated college and I had no idea what to do with my life, I got a one-way ticket out to India with my girlfriend, and I was on that whole meditation trip. Um, you know, wandering around, had backpacks, going to ashrams, doing that whole thing, and after a while uh, probably 10 11 months in right i got this distinct feeling and i i just knew very firmly that i was not interested in remaining as kind of like a vagrant wandering you know dharma something that i wasn't interested in checking out and that i didn't think it was possible that i didn't think it was the right thing to do to go retire to a mountain somewhere that i wanted to participate in the culture that was going on you know, back in the U.S. where it's kind of strongest, but it's kind of all over the world now, because it is literally eating the world. It is growing. Like you're saying, it's becoming, it's infinite. It's growing and, and getting larger and larger. And it seems like not only much more interesting, but kind of imperative at this point to operate from inside of it. And like you're saying, to try to exercise these, these distinctions within it, rather than, than being an ascetic and trying to just turn the other cheek, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's super interesting. I uh, I do think that there is that in the things which we have a drive for, which everyone would agree would be food okay, and sex. Right. And, and right. all these other things that human beings have a drive for these things. You know, in some cases, you can kind of manage them by enforcing, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, an abstinence only or like, you know, just. You, you're, or you tell someone you know who who is trying to lose weight like just eat less
2: right right, right.
0: It's like if, if you really want to lose weight just become the biggest food snob ever because you <laughs> you know you'll go out to eat there'll be nothing that you can even eat right And so I think that there is a there's a safety in terms of high standards and that in these these the cases of these drives and what I would argue is that the drive to consume fiction, is as much a deep biological drive as food or, or sex or, or, or social relationships. Um, maybe some are even, you know, like obviously hunger is probably the, it's, it's the most immediate drive. Right. But I would definitely argue that fiction and the, the urge to consume fiction can be grouped into this set of drives. And if you think about it that way, then there's no sense in talking about preventative measures, the best thing you can do is talk about, OK, let's what judo can we do where yeah. we take the advancing technology and try to say make really good VR art, right. you know, and then you know, if there's VR art out there and there's people who can be kind of who, who are both personally and culturally, there's this obvious spectrum where some people are like, yeah, the low VR stuff, which is basically like super repetitive uh, kit uh, or porn or something, right? Right. It's like kind of the low end VR stuff. And then there's like some maybe some really, really high end VR stuff that everyone kind of agrees is really, really good, really highly rated. As long as people are maintaining that spectrum, then it's going to influence their behavior and it's going to keep them from, from disappearing up their own brain So I, I kind of firmly believe that the only way forward through this, just in the way that the only way forward in terms of anything where you have infinite abundance and you have a drive to consume that infinite abundance has to be by having some sort of spectrum, having some sort of hierarchical structure, having social judgments involved, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That that is going to be necessary just to kind of get us through.
1: Yeah. I wonder, just kind of one wrapping up, when I think about kind of moving beyond postmodernism and this idea of, or not this idea, but considering what ideas are going to kind of refill that vacuum. One of the things I'm very interested in is the the idea of play and coupling play with something like education, some kind of lifelong education as these two virtues that I think can be very inherently good. Um, you You've written a little bit about play in children, and I'm wondering, I'm trying to figure out what play looks like in adults, you know, when is there a way to kind of culture and sustain systems that encourage the same kind of virtuous play that we look at in children in adults.
0: I think that that is a uh, kind of a tough question. Uh, I I think that in terms of play with adults, most people who would classify or self-classify, right. As into as intellectuals, right. They would describe intellectual activity as, as some form of play, right. As you become an adult play, becomes more abstract in terms of encouraging play. I do think that most just like how play is kind of spontaneous that most people who are like lifelong learners or, or are kind of at play with ideas in some sort of spontaneous way. Right. And the systems that we've set up, which are like the college system in the United States, for instance, I don't think it, it really in any sense, educates people in that most like one, it's only four years, and you know most people either you know, stop learning about new stuff after college, or they be, and you know they become kind of stuck within their their very particular path, right like their rut. Right. And so I wonder if in the future, some sort of online interactions will be that are a little bit more playful will be a replacement for like more traditional learning. Right. But I don't have any kind of special insight into <laughs> what those sort of platforms will look like or so on. Like I, I'm quite sure that college professor as a lecturer is not the best career to be in. Right. Um, but of course, most most college professors do more than just teach. so Right. But it's it, it is the case that I think that at some point in the future stuff will be taught mostly online. Yeah. And hopefully it will be yeah, more playful and so on. But I I think I do think that play is the most important for kids. I, I, yeah. Kids, you know, adults, play is, is good and, and, and important. But most people, their work kind of becomes, in a sense, kind of like play, if you're very lucky. But for kids, it's, it's essential. And we know it's essential. We see how it's essential in other species. Yeah.
1: Is there anything else lingering for you? Anything that came up that, that felt untied?
0: No, it's been it's been a it's been a great conversation and a lot of fun. Um, thank you, yes, yeah, so much for uh, for inviting me on.
1: All right, enjoy the day. Thanks for coming on. All right, that was Eric Howell. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I had about fifty more questions I wanted to ask, but if you are interested in learning more about Eric's work. You can check out the show notes for links to his essays. You'll find the show notes are at musingmind.org slash podcast and clicking on the Eric Hoel button. I'll also list his website, ericphoel.com, where he has links to all of his writing, scientific and otherwise. And if you enjoyed the podcast and want to help it exist, you can head over to patreon.com/slash oshanjaro, or you can find that through the podcast page website. And you can also just help out by rating the podcast on iTunes or sharing it with a friend. All support at this point does go towards getting the podcast off the ground. And with all of that, I thank you all for being here and I'll talk to you next time.